Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be discussing the life and times of origin of Alexandria. And this is going to be coming from two main sources, one pro-origin of Alexandria and one that's hostile towards him. Origin of Alexandria was known as innovating um, the integration of Neoplatonic thought into Christianity. One of his works on first principles is a classic example of using Platonism and giving it a Christian lens. Of course, he's not the first to do this. I have on the screen some dates for some other individuals. Clement of Alexandria came before him and then Philo of Alexandria before. And Origen of Alexandria, guess what? They're, they're, they're all coming from the same location. Surprise, surprise. But let's talk about Origen of Alexandria and his life. Oh, where did he grow up? What did he do? What sources do we have? We don't really have any autobiographical stuff. It's He doesn't talk about himself in his own life. And so our main sources have to come from outside of him. The first source that we're going to be dealing with is Eusebius. And Eusebius is a church historian, very famous for writing the church history. He is very favorable towards origin of Alexandria. So he gives them a favorable slant. And he quotes in his work, quotes from Porphyry, who's a Neoplatonist, a disciple of Plotinus, who's a disciple of Ammonius Sactus. Who else is a disciple of Ammonius Sactus? Origin of Alexandria. And so Porphyry's not favorable to the Christian origin of Alexandria. He actually uh, mocks him. But his mocking is used by Eusebius in a positive way in order to illustrate the strengths of origin. So there's some interesting things that we can gather from that account as well. But uh, origin pretty early had some enemies. He had people who condemned him as heretic for some of his views. Remember, he's, he's first integrating Platonism into Christianity. Then it becomes more refined. And then all of a sudden, the innovators of this Platonizing of Christianity Suddenly, these individuals are the heretics because they don't have this fully integrated Platonic system. Origen has, often when you're listening to Origen podcasts or, or things about the teachings of Origen, they'll say things that he believed as if those things are heresies, but they won't explain why it is he believed those things. They'll say that uh, he believed in the pre-existence of the soul or universal salvation, but trust me, this is not the concept of modern day people who believe in universal salvation. He, he was a good Platonist. He believed that all things flowed from the one and all things need to return to the one. There's this cyclical action within creation. In that way, all things are going to be saved. He wasn't just a everyone goes to heaven type of guy. He, it was a Neoplatonic metaphysic that he was implementing. And the people who are discussing, quote unquote, his heresies will forget, they will neglect to mention the reasoning and specifically what he believed about those issues. And then they'll just quote them in our modern understanding and say, oh yeah, that's super heretical, right? But no, he's a good Neoplatonist. He's a good Platonist. He's, he understands his systematic fairly well. You could read his On First Principles, which talks about these, these different ideas. But we're not going to be doing that tonight. We're actually just going to be going over his life. 
uh, who he was, where he grew up, and how he was known in the ancient world. So we're going to start with Eusebius, and this is in Church History, Book 6, and it talks about Origen's dad, who Eusebius claims, Leonides, called the father of Origen, who was beheaded while his son was young. So according to Eusebius, and remember Eusebius lived from about 260 to 339 AD. This is well after Origen. Origen died maybe 253. So there, there's, a, there's a gap of location and distance between these two individuals. Palfrey, on the other hand, who is quoted, does claim to know Origen, so has a little bit more direct interaction and, and was a disciple of, of uh, Plotinus, who was a fellow disciple of Ammonius Sanctus with, with Origen. And so we're, we're, we'll take a look at those conflicting accounts. But according to Eusebius, Origen had a father who was persecuted, martyred. Origen grows up in a, a church family, a Christian family, that teaches him daily the scriptures. And Origen has, has a very big zeal for studying Christianity. So much so that he, he longs for martyrdom. Eusebius writes, It was the tenth year of the reign of Cerverus, while Laetus was governor of Alexandria and the rest of Egypt, and Demetrius had lately received the episcopate of the parishes there as successor successor of Julian. As the flame of persecution had been kindled greatly and multitudes had gained the crown of martyrdom, such desire for martyrdom seized the soul of Origen, though yet a boy, that he went close to danger, springing forward and rushing to the conflict in his eagerness. Right, so he, he really wants martyrdom. And truly the termination of his life had very been very near had not the divine and heavenly providence for the benefit of many prevented his desire through agency of his mother. His mother is a professing Christian, so what does his mother do? At first entreating him, next, but finding when he had learned that his father had been seized and imprisoned, he was set more resolutely and completely carried away with zeal for martyrdom, she hid all his clothing and thus compelled him to remain at home. It's like, if you're going to be a martyr, you're going to have to run out naked and shame yourself. And so then he had to think twice about being a naked martyr, according to this legend, right? Um, I, it does not seem that Eusebius knew Origen directly. So, of course, Origen's father is in prison. Then they, Eusebius starts talking about the life of Origen. He says that uh, he was trained in the divine scriptures from childhood and had not studied them with indifference. He was very zealous towards these scriptures, according to this account. He says, for his father, besides giving him the usual liberal education, had made them a matter of no secondary importance. First of all, before inducting him into the Greek sciences, all right, so keep that in mind, there, he's, he's known very acutely for his study in Greek philosophy. That's what's being referenced here. He drilled him in sacred studies, requiring him to learn and recite every day. And so this is like an extreme Christian type household being described here. Nor was this irksome to the boy, but he's eager and diligent in these studies, and he was not satisfied with learning what was simple and obvious in the sacred word, but sought for something more, even at the age busied himself with deeper speculations, so that he puzzled his father with inquiries for 
you know, true meaning of the inspired scripture. So in, in this account, he's so zealous for the scriptures that he annoys his dad and his dad is secretly happy, as it goes on to say. Paragraph 12, but when his father ended his life in martyrdom, he was left with his mother and six younger brothers. So what happens here? His, his father's dead, and then he has to go live with a rich benefactress woman. So paragraph 13, he's now staying with this rich woman of great wealth, and he's staying with a notable heretic as well. And this man is named Paul in the next paragraph, but we just don't know who he is and what he's teaching. It says, she, the woman of wealth with whom he's staying, was treated, treating with great honor a famous heretic then in Alexandria, who, however, was born in Antioch. He was with her as an adopted son, and she treated him with great kindness. And so this individual draws a lot of people to the conversation, and Origen, apparently in this legend, is able to demonstrate his great skills. It's interesting to note that uh, Eusebius doesn't quote his sources for any of this, and so apparently it's a word of mouth. Uh, we just don't know. Eusebius then goes on to recount how Origen again and again escapes persecution. Um, they, they chase him down. He escapes. He gets through everything. We're going to compare this to the other account of Origen's persecution and how it is handled. But in this account, he endears to the end. Eusebius concludes with this statement, For they say that his manner of life was as his doctrine, and his doctrine as his life. Therefore, by divine power working with him, he aroused a great many to his own zeal. He says that they say, right? This is all word of mouth type stuff. In the next paragraphs, Eusebius describes him as an ascetic, uh, someone who uh, disdains earthly desires, lives a very philosophic life devoid of pleasures. And uh, we're going to quickly get into this idea where he castrates himself in order to avoid sexual let's say, the sexual urges. We're just going to actually skip to that uh, reference and read it. At this time, while Origen was conducting instruction in Alexandria, a deed was done to him, which evidenced an immature and youthful mind. And so Eusebius is saying this was just done zealously, and if he was older, he would have given it a second thought and then not done it. It's kind of dismissive of this act, if this act even occurred. But this, this is the idea that, uh, yeah, he was castrated, which apparently was, was a well-known and sometimes derided idea that one would castrate themselves, that the origin was looked down on for this act. And so Eusebius dismisses this as like youthful zeal. He says, for he, origin, took the words, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, in a too literal and extreme sense, and in order to fulfill the Savior's word, at the same time to take away from the unbelievers all opportunity for scandal. For although young, he met for the study of divine things with women as well as men. He carried out in action the word of the Savior. So he castrates himself. Eusebius then talks about a certain Demetrius, who at first um, encourages this act, then uses it once Origen starts getting a little bit of fame to decry him. Uh, there's, there's an act of jealousy. Reversing course, let's go back to Clement of Alexandria. So we already discussed how Clement was an innovator 
in Neoplatonism. And in the book, The Neoplatonists of Alexandria, it makes a pretty bold claim that Clement of Alexandria was um, the first Neoplatonist, the first person to popularize Neoplatonism, was a Christian, the, the founder of this school, so to speak. Uh, but there's, there's other ideas about a categorization of Platonism, and really it's all one big continuum. It's, it's not, there, there's not these def, de, definite, uh, definitive schools of Platonism that uh, the terms might make us think about. No, oh, Origen believed the same things as Plotinus generally, who believed the same thing as Plato generally. You remember Plato has the treatise on the one, the one's ineffable, the one's immutable, it's simple, doesn't have parts, these types of things. These are, these are normal Platonistic ideas. So Eusebius says Origen is a pupil and studied under Clement of Alexandria. There is some overlap in their time frame in Alexandria. While Clement's growing old, Origen is growing up. All right, now we're down to chapter 16 in Eusebius. It's about Origen's earnest study of divine scriptures. So that's one thing we do need to give Origen. Origen understood the Bible very thoroughly. He compiled a huge lists of texts and variances between various Old Testaments. Remember, he said the New Testaments are so varied that he doesn't even dare try what he did with the Old Testament. But he's, he's also our source for ideas such as the Jews not using the Septuagint because the Septuagint was a bad translation that didn't translate accurately, and they instead preferred the better translations, the more accurate translations, such as the Aquilo. It says here, he investigated also the works of other translators of sacred scriptures besides the Semite, in addition to the well-known translations of Aquila, the Semachus, and Theodotion. He discovered certain others which had been concealed from remote times in what out-of-the-way corners I do not know, and by his search he brought them to light. So he is well acquainted with the scriptures. Uh, I will give them that, and I think he's fairly reliable on that front. Remember, he didn't believe the scriptures. He was an innovator of allegorizing the scriptures. And so he, he, he doesn't have the same motivations to corrupt the text uh, that other people might have, right? To rewrite things in order to just make them more palatable. He already does that. He has a systematic to do that. Scrolling down, chapter 18, Ambrose, who used to be a follower of Valentinius, the Valentinians, converts to Christianity through origin. Remember, Ambrose is the spiritual father of Augustine, Augustine's pastor, and converts him to Christianity through this idea that you have to read the Bible in light of philosophy, in light of Platonism. Eusebius writes, Many others also, drawn by the fame of Origen's learning, which resounded everywhere, came to him to make trial of his skill in sacred literature. And a great many heretics, and not a few most distinguished philosophers, studied under him diligently, receiving instruction from him not only in divine things, but also secular philosophy. For when he perceived that any persons had superior intellect, he instructed them also in philosophic branches, in geometry, arithmetic, and other preparatory studies, and then advanced the systems of philosophers and explained their writings. He made observations and comments upon each of them, 
so that he became celebrated as a great philosopher even among the Greeks themselves. Eusebius writes, And he instructed many of the less learned in the common school branches, saying that these would be no small help to them in the study and understanding of the divine scriptures. On this account, he considered it especially necessary for himself to be skilled in secular and philosophic learning. He's teaching people to interpret the Bible in light of Platonism. And we'll get get a little bit more in detail into that. Eusebius, this, this is a brag. This is not like, uh, this is a naughty thing to do, is to interpret the Bible in light of Platonism. This is this should be celebrated. He, he had this philosophical knowledge, this philosophical training, and he interpreted the Bible in light of these things. Eusebius writes, The Greek philosophers of his age are witness to his proficiency in these subjects. We find frequent mention of him in their writings. Sometimes they dedicated their own works to him. Again, they submitted their labors to him as teacher for his judgment. Now here's where we start quoting... Porphyry. And who's Porphyry? He's the disciple of Plotinus, who's the disciple of Ammonius Saccus, who was a teacher of Origen, right? Uh, Eusebius is going to claim that Ammonius Saccus was a Christian and remained a Christian till his death, but Porphyry says exactly the opposite. We don't have Porphyry's direct works. We only have him quoted in Eusebius because, of course, the church went through these purging cycles where they would destroy any pagan works. And among those were the works of the Neoplatonists who were critical of Christianity. And so we have them preserved snippets, fragments of these writings in Christian works. And we have to just kind of mentally piece them together. But Porphyry is a critic of Origen. So let's hear what Porphyry has to say. Porphyry, a man who actually met Origen. He says, even Palfrey, who lived in Sicily in our own times and wrote books against us, attempted to traduce the divine scriptures by them, mentions those who have interpreted them and being unable in any way to find base accusation against the doctrines for lack of arguments, turns to reviling and calumniating their interpreters, attempting especially to slander Origen, whom he says he knew in his youth. And so here, here we get the idea that Palfrey actually knew Origen. And uh, Eusebius is getting angry because Palfrey is saying these Christians have bad interpretation. Rather than attacking the Christian philosophical doctrines being taught by Christianity, he's not attacking that. And Eusebius is saying, look, he's not attacking our philosophy. He's attacking our interpretation style because he doesn't think it's an honest interpretation style. Right? Eusebius is proud of the philosophical interpretation of Scripture. But truly, without knowing it, he commends the man. Palfrey commends uh, Origen accidentally, telling the truth about him in some cases where he could not do otherwise, but uttering falsehoods where he thinks he will not be detected. Right? I mean, I don't, it doesn't seem to me that Palfrey is just, just a dishonest guy just telling lies. But to Eusebius, he needs to be because some of the things Palfrey says, Eusebius doesn't seem to like. Sometimes he accuses him as a Christian. Again, he describes his proficiency in philosophic learning, but hear his own words. Now we're going to get the direct quote. Some persons desiring to find a solution of the baseness of Jewish scriptures, and this is not like common error, being based, being awesome, being cool, being grounded in truth. This is like baseless, like this is nonsense. Some persons, some persons desiring to find a solution to the absolute corruption, the baseness 
of Jewish scriptures rather than abandon them have had recourse to explanations inconsistent and incongruous with the words written, which explanations, instead of supplying a defense of the foreigners, contain rather approval and praise of themselves. For they boast that the plain words of Moses are enigmas. Yeah, this sounds pretty common, right? And regard them as oracles full of hidden mysteries, and having bewildered the mental judgment by folly, they make their explanation. So this is Palfrey criticizing Christians. And what's the criticism? That they take the plain words of Moses and then make them into like super mysteries. And, and oh, this is what they really mean. It, read Philo of Alexandria in his commentary on Genesis, and you'll see him doing this. It's all sorts of absurd leaps of logic. You read just a normal phrase, and then you have this huge explanation that's an absurd leap of logic that has nothing to do with that, what's actually being discussed. But it, I guess it might sound flowerily enough to, for people to say, oh, wow, that's some pretty deep philosophical insight. But it's absolute nonsense. And so the criticisms being levied against Christians by Palfrey are accurate. All we have to do is, is read these people in their own words. Farther on, he says, Palfrey says, as an example of this absurdity, take a man whom I met when I was young. So there's a direct quote, he knew Origen when he was young, and who was then greatly celebrated and still is, on account of the writings which he has left. And so there's an acknowledgement, Origen is very popular. I refer to Origen, who is highly honored by the teachers of these doctrines. For this man, having been a hearer of Ammonius. So we haven't heard of Ammonius up until now. So it's interesting that Eusebius leaves him out of the commentary thus far. Where does that fit in, Eusebius? Hmm. Who had attained the greatest proficiency in philosophy of any in our day, derived much benefit from his teacher in the knowledge of the sciences. And so Ammonius is actually giving most of the stuff, guess what? Not only to Origen, but also to Plotinus, the, the Neoplatonist extraordinaire who popularizes Neoplatonism and then delivers that through his writings, Palfrey's writings, to Augustine, who incorporates these ideas into the church. It's all coming from the same source, all coming from Ammonius Sactus, who is a Eastern Neoplatonist. For Ammonius, being a Christian and brought up by Christian parents, when he gave himself to study and to philosophy, straight away conformed to the life required by the laws. These, these are not the laws of Moses. He actually converts away from, from Christianity in this account. But Origen, having been educated as a Greek in Greek literature, went over to the barbarian recklessness. So in Palfrey's account, Origen is not brought up in a Christian family. In Palfrey's account, Ammonius Sactus is brought up in a Christian family and then converts over to, uh, to paganism. And the opposite is the case for Origen. They're kind of like mirror images of each other. Origen is brought up as a Greek, as a pagan, and then converts over to Christianity. And uh, we will be reading that hostile, hostile individual, Epiphanius, who doesn't like Origen. And we'll see how Stories about origin kind of morph or take on a new flavor over time. And we'll see how legends develop and perpetuate based on who they're talking about, right? And so all of history needs to be taken with a grain of salt. These are individuals removed in space and time from the actual events. 
a lot of this is word of mouth that's coming down to us and we're already seeing here that there are conflicting accounts so who's more reliable is it eusebius or is it Palfrey? is it a person who didn't know origin and is defending origins philosophy as his uh, christianity or is it the individual criticizing origin and origins christianity so he says origin goes over to barbarian recklessness this is the jews the jews are barbarians in that society and carrying over the learning which he had obtained he hawked it about in his life conducting himself as a christian and contrary to the laws but in his opinions of material things and of the deity being like a Greek and mingling Gratian teachings with foreign fables. This is Platonism. This is, this is not, this is not Zeus ideas or anything like that. When Pulfrey is talking about Greek teaching, he's talking about Platonism. Pulfrey writes, for he was continually studying, studying Plato, right? He's continually studying Plato. And that's uh, pretty apparent by anyone who's familiar with both Plato and with Origen. He studies Plato. And he busied himself with the writings of Numerius and Cronius, Apollophanes, Longinus, Moderatus, and Nicomachus, and those famous among the Pythagoreans. And he used the books of Cheremon the Stoic and of Cornutius. It, like like all the Neoplatonist type philosophers, he's studying these people, becoming acquainted through them with the figurative interpretation in Grecian mysteries. He applied it to the Jewish scriptures. Now, keep in mind that uh, the mysteries, we do have a couple podcasts that we did on the mysteries, and the mysteries were basically ascension cults, ascend the material world into the divine. We hear Plato talking about these mystery cults and their ascension rituals and the goals of these mystery cults and then we have those types of ideas echoing through the ages that's what they were set up around is some sort of platonic purification and ascent some sort of meditation to reach these higher realms and Pulfrey seems to be referring to this idea as well that these mystery cult customs these mystery cult rituals are being applied to judaism right mystery cultism judaism being turned into mystery cultism eusebius says this is said by Pulfrey in his third book of his work against the christians which is lost to us today we don't have it he speaks truly of the industry and the learning of the man but plainly utters falsehood for what will not an opposer of christians do yeah anyone who poses christians they just lie 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 yeah, when he says that he went over from the Greeks and that Ammonius fell from the life of piety into heathen customs. And so, so Eusebius is doing two things. He's saying Origen was raised a Christian and stayed a Christian and Ammonius was raised a Christian and stayed a Christian. That all these people are Christians and Pulfrey's just making up that these people weren't Christians because he doesn't like Christians and um, so those data points uh, behoove him. So he's just making them up to slander the Christians. All right. Now, paragraph 10. For the doctrine of Christ was taught by Origen by his parents, as we have shown above. And Ammonius held the divine philosophy unshaken and unadulterated to the end of his life. His works yet existent show this as he is celebrated among many for the writings which he has left. So here is where we get into some interesting ideas that there's just there's two ammoniuses because ammonius sactus did not actually write anything but there's existent works by an ammonius which categorizes scriptures things like that 
And so the idea is just, just as there's two origins, uh, there Palfrey writes about an origin who's just a good Platonist who he's familiar with. That was also a hearer of Ammonius Saccus. That's different than the Christian origin. Just like that, there's two Ammoniuses, and Eusebius is mixing them up and mixing up the Christian writing Ammonius with the Ammonius Saccus who did not write anything. For the example, the work entitled The Harmony of Moses and Jesus and such others are in the position, possession of the learned. And there's also a book that harmonizes the Gospels as well. And so there are... Yeah, at that time, writings by an Ammonius, which is probably not to be confused with Ammonius Sactus. We will just be covering Origen's early life because um, there's a lot of material here, but eventually he goes to Caesarea, Caesarea, and has a library there. And it, that's actually how we have the preserved works of Philo of Alexandria. The Jews did not preserve those works. He was Origen was a student of the works of Philo of Alexandria, who also was a famed, um, he, he took the scriptures in an allegorical sense. He is famed at uh, making the scriptural stories spiritual and giving allegorical, spiritual, and non-literal meanings to the text of the Bible. So let's now turn to one of Origen's critics. We already talked about Jerome a little bit. We looked at the timeline. Jerome's a little bit after Epiphanius. Epiphanius is the critic that we'll be quoting here, but Jerome also is a critic. And we do learn some things from Jerome. He repeats some of these legends, but Jerome also is not a fan. There's a huge letter where he disclaims anything to do with origin. He says, I could quote him on good things, but I'm not an originist. I don't follow origin. And he's got a lot of problems. But the, the most the, the longest, most existent anti-origin spiel is by this Epiphanius from 310 to 403 AD. And I'm being generous, and so maybe it's more like 320 to 403, and Origin's dying in 250. So, you know, this is maybe 100 years later, uh, separated by distance, separated by time. But guess what? Origin's ideas are falling out of favor, and you have a new neoplatonistic idea of trinity and so origins pre-hypostatic union ideas are falling out of favor and now becoming heretical and now he's being condemned by his own party because his own party developed past what he's established right and so they criticize him so much so that they're now going to start defaming him they're going to spread rumors that seem to be conflations with other accounts something happens to someone else oh guess what now it is a story about origin and it's uh, something defamatory towards origin it's probably probably happened to someone else that's being repurposed because these legends sometimes morph into one one another right it, you, you don't you don't keep the story straight the actor changes so in epiphanius's account origin again is the son of Leonides and Leonides is martyred so that does line up he says he's well schooled in the Greek education and brought up in the church and became known at Alexandria in the emperor Decius's time he was a native Egyptian but lived and was brought up in Alexandria perhaps also went to the schools at Athens at some time 
He goes on to say, It is said that he suffered a great deal from the holy word of faith and the name of Christ, and indeed was often dragged around in the city, insulted and subjected to excruciating tortures. But guess what? It, does, it doesn't hold, not always. Let's, let's scroll down to the next paragraph. But his deeds did not always remain worthy of the prize until the end. He had been an object of extreme envy for his superior learning and education and further provoked the authorities to his day. With diabolical malice, the workers of iniquity thought of mistreating him sexually and making that his punishment, and they secured a black to abuse his body. But Origen could not bear even the thought of the devil's work and shouted that given the choice of either, he would rather sacrifice. He's going to sacrifice to the false gods. Certainly, as is widely reported, he did not do this willingly either, but since he had agreed to do it at all, he heaped the incense on his hands and dumped it on the altar flyer. He, thus he was excluded from a martyr's status at the time by the confessors and martyrs who were his judges and expelled from the church. So he's kicked from the church for uh, sacrificing to false gods because he didn't want to be a martyr. Compare this with the account in Eusebius in which he's so zealous he has to be held back from martyrdom by his mother's actions. Looking down here in the footnotes, it appears that this seems to be a variation on the story of Origen's pupil, Potamania, who is threatened with rape by gladiators, answers defiantly, and is put to death. And so this is kind of a fictional story that's being applied to origin. It's not found in other writers and uh, like likely fraudulent. But since uh, our friend here, Epiphanius does not like origin, he's going to repeat it. He's going to claim it. Eusebius doesn't actually report anything like that. But again, Eusebius also is somewhat untrustworthy and he admits in some of his writings that he's left out things that might be defamatory towards Christianity. So he's admittedly biased in his historical recordings. The next footnote here states that, uh, yeah, that he's inaccurately quoting, that Epiphanius is inaccurately quoting Eusebius on Origen being kicked out by the Synod. Epiphanius then reports that Origen flees Alexandria out of shame, right? This is shame, and lives in Palestine, that is Judea. Arriving in Jerusalem, he was urged in by the priesthood as a man with such skill in exegesis, so highly educated to speak in the church. So he spent some time in Jerusalem. In any case, he goes back to Alexandria and meets Ambrose. In this account, Ambrose is a Marcionite or a Sabellian rather than a Valentinian and then converts him to the faith. Then in conclusion, well, for our purposes today, Epiphanius talks about his self-castration, which he criticizes to no end. And uh, if you're very interested in this, you could go pull up this book and look at the following sections, which details what Epiphanius believes are the various heresies of origin. But let's keep in mind what we just witnessed today. We witnessed three different authorities on origin, two hostile and one pro-origin. The most hostile one is also the most immediate, which is Pulfrey, who actually met origin and had a great dealing with Plotinus, who was 
a co-follower of Ammonius Sactus um, during their time in Alexandria. And so Palfrey probably has more direct knowledge of origin than Eusebius. Eusebius seems to be a propagandist, and Epiphanius is trying to be uh, anti-propagandist with his own propaganda against origin. And so what do we make of all of this? I would say probably the most trustworthy is going to be Palfrey, that Origen was raised as a Greek, converted to Christianity, and probably uh, Eusebius is correct in talking about his dedication to Christianity after his conversion. Maybe his father was Christian, maybe his father was martyred, but maybe Origen still was raised as a Greek and then converted over to Christianity and then became zealous for it. Of course, he's celebrated in his time for being a great intellectual. And after he dies, that's when his fame starts going downhill, where he starts getting criticism that he can't actually respond to. And who knows, maybe if he's alive during the time of Augustine, they could have hashed it out and came to the most Platonistic solution, and he wouldn't be a heretic anymore. But he died before all that happened, and so his works were enshrined and hated for it. So stories had to be invented negatively about him, defaming him, because you can't just be a heretic, you also have to be a bad human being, right? And that's the idea of Epiphanius taking various stories they've heard and applying it to origin, trying to defame his character. He has to be a bad person in addition to being a heretic. And then you have individuals like Jerome making selective use out of origin and fully disclaiming origin. I think origin lately has had somewhat of a revival. People have been seeing some value in his work. And his value to us, of course, is as a data point in the Platonization of Christianity. One of the first Platonist treatises merging Christianity and Platonism on first principles, just go read his section on God. Go read his a section on Trinity, on relations. It's not very long. Uh, you could get through it and you could kind of see um, the elements of what we talk about with Neoplatonism, where God is a simple essence without parts. Origen was very critical of the body, of, of corporal existence. And uh, that sort of uh, those sort of ideas were perpetuated in the church. Again, Clement of Alexandria first came before Origen and was a teacher of Origen. Origen was a dedicated scholar. He knew a lot about the Bible. He collected works, various works, and preserved them for us today. We should be extremely grateful for Origen and his library at Caesarea and and saving alive these works that would otherwise be lost. Philo of Alexandria would be lost to us today if not for Origen. So we have a lot to thank this man for and we should treat him with some sort of respect for his scholarship. And uh, that's that's really important not to lose sight of what he's done for the modern world. But I, he, he does seem to be defamed. Um, in later years, when his memory starts fading, when it's supplanted by a more pure version of Platonism, one that, that fits their idea of a hypostatic union a little bit better than Origen had developed, right? It, it, you weren't removed enough from Christ in order to develop these theories, and so now you are a heretic. 
even though there's not predecessors for these ideas. Anyways, that's what I wanted to talk about today. Questions or comments, put that down below or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening. Oh, 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 oh,